Well, if you would, turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. <laughs> uh, a couple of you said before we started this study, I've never heard of Nehemiah. For some of you, you have the whole book memorized. So we got quite the spectrum here. Um, but uh, let me just do a little bit of a review as we get to ch- we're in chapter 1, verse 4, to give you a little bit of the timeline again. Remember that in 586, this is B.C., the Babylonians... Under uh, well, in 586 they've had it. There's been, f- they've kind of overtaken the land. <clears throat> uh, they've done a couple deportations, tried to bring instability among the Jewish population. But by 586, they, their uh, patience has worn out. And the Babylonians will go in and they'll destroy the temple. Now, again, for us, that's, oh, that's awful. For, for a Jew living at this time frame, that is devastating. That is, that is your identity. That is your place of worship. That is your economic center. That's your political headquarters. And so losing the temple, uh, no wonder when eventually under the Persians, the Babylonians are defeated. You know, really, the history of Israel, it's a cat and mouse game. All right, just think of Israel being mice. Uh, when the cats are sick and coughing up hairballs, the mice get a little bit braver and stronger. When the cats are strong, that is the foreign powers, such as the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Hittites, etc. The, the, the cats or the mice are going to scurry away. And, and that's really the story of the land of Israel. <laughs> Why is Israel so important? It's a land bridge. It's very significant in the ancient world. It's a prime real estate. It was no mistake that God gave that to the Israelites. It's not as pretty as, I don't know, I've not been to Hawaii, but it, it, it's, it's nothing on that level. I mean, Israel has its own beauty, but that's not why he gave it to them. It's because it's, it's again, that land bridge. It's low, they call it the Levant. It's very significant. Well, under the Persians, the first thing the Jews do, the Persians have a whole different foreign policy than the Babylonians. They allow the locals to go back to their land. And the Israelites were no exception. They allow the Jews to go back. And the first thing they do is build the temple. That's exciting. Right? There's a rebel temple. It's nothing like the Solomonic that was destroyed during this time frame. And then our storyline is under Artaxerxes I. He is a Persian king, a very powerful Persian king. This is the superpower of the day. This is like the United States. All right? Um, good, bad, or different world power. Uh, and, and that was the case with the Persians. Uh, um, they had their problems. The Egyptians and the Greeks hated the Persians, etc. <clears throat> and that's why Israel is so significant. It's the buffer zone. Uh, that's why the Persians are guarding this territory like crazy. And I think that is why they'll allow Nehemiah to go back and to fortify Jerusalem. Why would they ever allow someone to fortify a city? It's because we know archaeologically that Artaxerxes fortified numerous cities in this territory to hold back the Egyptians and to hold back the Greeks. God is in charge. <laughs> I love studying history because you see the hand of God through all of this, right? Our, our, our guide in Israel, who I usually have, I love him to death. He's not a believer. Uh, Avi is his name. Um, but uh, he rehearses modern Israeli history and he says, there's only one explanation. And now this is not a believer. He says, it's God. 
How do you explain this? <laughs> You're right. How do you explain all of this that's happening? And we're dropped into the storyline in the 440s. Our story takes place in Shushan. This is the winter palace of the Persian Empire. Artaxerxes here. And, and what is Nehemiah's role in the palace? What, he's a cupbearer. That's very significant. We'll talk about that. Uh, uh, he plays a key role. And of course, Jerusalem is where we're focused. So we're looking at uh, Iran to modern Israel. And this is the walls that Nehemiah will build around the old city, uh, the city proper uh, of that time frame of Jerusalem. And we'll talk more on that as we, we go through. This is a layout of the book. And you're saying, wait a minute, you've got Ezra here. Yes, because in the Hebrew scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. They tell one story. Now, in our English translations, and it actually goes back to about the... Uh, uh, the Reformation period, the two books are split, all right? Uh, and they can each be studied in their own right, which we are doing, but collectively they need to be seen together. Yeah, Rock. What, uh, <clears throat> what was the rationalization to have more books to memorize? No, I, uh, no, um, uh, no. They they can be seen in their own right, and I think that was part of it. But even chronologically, it's not a direct sequence. Nehemiah is going to jump back a little bit to the time. There's an overlap, and you don't see that. So yeah, it's a bit unfortunate. When I teach Paul's letters, I don't teach them canonically. I teach them chronologically. Because I think it's better for us to retain what's going on. But anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. But uh, there's things that have done, that, you know. Um, so the theology, this is important. As we look through the book, three things I want you to see. Number one, the sovereign hand of God, which we talked about. The people of God are called, they're called to remain faithful. Even when Nehemiah comes and he serves as governor, 52 days they build the walls, a reform is brought. He then goes back to Susa and he comes back and the place is a mess. You're going, oh my goodness. I feel like a coach, don't you, Jimmy? Uh, Dan, uh, you, I got my basketball coaches over here. You work with the team and then they take a little break and you come back and go, all right, did I teach anything? Where are you? All right? And that's kind of the idea here. And that's the undertow of this book is that even with walls around Jerusalem, even with religious reform, political reform, full restoration has not taken place. There's another day that is needed. And what's the, other day? What's the day they're looking to? Christ, right? The Davidic king to come. Uh, Jesus the Meshua. So uh, that's where we are in the storyline. That took us a while to get there. And now we're going to look at the prayer. So Nehemiah 1.4. This to me is some of the richest text in the Old Testament. Some of my favorite, Tom Flynn. 1.4. Uh, Seriously, I, I love this prayer. It says, when I heard these things. So Nehemiah hears. And I, by the way, notice what is reported to him in verse 2. Some of the men from Judah came to me and asked him about the fugitive Jews that remain from the exile and about Jerusalem. That is key because when Nehemiah goes to the Lord, his major focus is on Jerusalem. And Packer says it's not that he's up, Nehemiah is upset as much about the remnant that's left, but about the city. Why? Because it's known as the city of God. God's reputation is at stake. And this is what drives Nehemiah. It's amazing. Listen to what he says in 1.4. When I heard these things, I slumped down, crying and mourning for several days. In fact, his prayer is going to go on for four months. 
We know that. The text tells us. He heard the news in December. It's not until April that he will approach the king of the Persians. And you have to understand, uh, yeah, he's a trusted uh, delegate uh, for Artaxerxes, but uh, he's putting his life on the line to, to request to go to Jerusalem. But in 1.4, he says he prayed before the God of heaven. Catch that, because three times the word heaven is going to occur in this text. Then I said, please. That is a loaded term. It will begin with please, it will end with please, and in the Hebrew we'll talk about this term in a minute. It says, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, who keeps his loving covenant with those who love him and obey his commandments, may your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. And I'm praying to you today throughout both day and night on behalf of your servants, the Israelites. I am confessing the sins of the Israelites that, known as the pronoun, we have committed against you. Both I myself and my family have sinned. We have behaved corruptly. Literally, the term means destroy. And he uses it twice here. <laughs> Not obeying the commandments, the statutes, the judgments that you commanded your servant Moses. Please recall the word you commanded your servant Moses. If you act unfaithfully, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you repent and obey my commandments and do them, then even if your dispersed people are in the most remote location, literally the ends of the heavens, which he's already said twice, you are the God of the heavens. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen for my name to reside. Right? They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your mighty strength and by your powerful hand. Please, O oh Lord, listen attentively to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who take pleasure in showing respect to your name. Grant your servant success today and show compassion to me in the presence of this man. Now, he says, I was the cupbearer to the king. So let's unpack this. Uh, this is going to be the layout of the notes. This is his prayer. He's going to start by acknowledging God's greatness. Uh, by the way, this prayer resembles what Christ taught his disciples to pray. So watch this. God's greatness, he will appeal to God's forgiveness. He will then rehearse God's promises, the word of God. So he's incorporating scripture. We'll talk about that. And then, and only then, will he petition God's assistance. So watch this as we, we lay this out. And let's look first here in the notes. This is a letter A. And we see Nehemiah looks first to the Lord. He doesn't appeal first to all of his resources or tries to arrange some things, uh, his talents, abilities, political contacts. No. The first thing he does is he turns to the Lord. Nehemiah is an incredible man. And we've got some real principles here that I think we can glean as individuals. And again, Packer mentions that he thinks that the major reason Nehemiah is in great angst is because of what's happened to the city of Jerusalem. The second thing we see here is that Nehemiah pleads with the Lord. I mentioned this in verse 5. We see this word in the Hebrew called Anah, and he says it again in verse 11. 
Now I'm using the Net Bible, which is the New English Translation. It doesn't mean that it's more inspired. It's just an English version I like. Some of you have the ESV, which is also good, NIV, a New American Standard. So forgive me if it doesn't quite mesh here with your English version. But in verse 5 and in verse 11, the term is used and it's a... Um, well, it's a loaded term. Notice in your notes, I even quote the Net Bible notes. It says, This term is normally reserved for pleas for mercy from God in life and death situations. And this is where this use is being here for forgiveness of heinous sins that would result or would have resulted in severe judgment from God. It's an amazing response from Nehemiah, isn't it? Uh, he is crying out to God for assistance. Yeah, Rock. So, it's, it's not please the way we conventionally understand please. It's more almost like begging. <coughs> begging with a really contrite heart. It's emotionally laden. Uh, there, there's much here that's being brought out in just this one little term. So it's not... Uh, no, this, this is an entreaty. This is, we've sinned and we're about to die. Oh Lord, please intervene. I, I'm falling at your mercy. Uh, yeah, one more and we'll move on. Yeah, verse 5. Something that people overlook is the God who preserves the covenant. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there because you are right. Uh, again, that's really insightful. Very good. In fact, notice I even mentioned this in your notes. What does Nehemiah state concerning the Lord? Notice what he says. And you mentioned one. He preserves his covenant. He's a God who keeps his word. This is going to be very important because in verses 8 and forward, Nehemiah is going to remind the Lord, you made a covenant with us that we could get to go back to the land if we're faithful. <laughs> right? Uh, he's pulling out all the cards. But he, he first starts with, yeah, you're the one who keeps his word. And it's a loaded term, by the way. It's chesed. It is a contractual love. He, he's saying, you're the God who has a, a loyal love with your people. What else does he state about God? What else do we see here in, these, in this opening verse of the prayer? We mentioned, where is he located? The God of the heavens, right? And at the bottom of your notes, I mentioned the significance of that. Our Father who art in heaven. The indication that you are the transcendent one. You are the sovereign one. Who are we, right? We're the worm on the dirt, <laughs> so to speak. Right? That, that's in, what else does he state about the Lord here? He's awesome. He's awesome. He's great. And he's awesome. Everything is awesome. All right? Yeah, he's great. He's awesome. This is our God. Anything else you see? Open to hear, hear and see our prayers. Yeah, he's going to get to this, but he says you're, you're, you're one who, who listens to us. It's not that... Yeah, we'll get to that but in a second. So he starts off in the midst of this great angst. And again, you see this in verse 4, right? I mean, he's formed a fetal position in the corner and has, has lost it. And he starts off and he turns to the Lord and says, Lord, I know you. 
I don't know about you, but you, uh, some of you are facing some deep waters. Don't <laughs> first turn to the Lord, right? Even Psalm 13, when David says, you know, how long, O Lord? Where are you in the midst of this? He doesn't, as he, the psalmist goes on, Psalm 13, David states, I know you. I, I know the past. And don't forget that, right? That's the, that's the rock in the midst of the storm that you cling to, the idea that's being brought forth here. And then on page two, I mentioned this, Nehemiah, of course, he's exalting the Lord, and that comes from that, that proper perspective. Kidner, in his commentary, says, Nehemiah reflects on the character of God, not only for its encouraging aspect, but first of all, for the majesty which puts man, whether friend or foe, in his place. Artaxerxes is nothing before you, O God. Right? And so, horrible news, major crisis. What's the first thing Nehemiah does? He's go, he goes to the Lord and says, I know who you are. And so, I'm going to start there, right? Then Nehemiah moves, and it's interesting, when he recognizes who God is, <laughs> he quickly recognizes who he is, right? Notice what he says. And what he doesn't say, by the way. He includes himself in the laundry list of sins. It, it reminds me of Daniel. Daniel does the same thing. I mentioned that in, in your notes there, Daniel 9. Both men, in, in their recognition of the sin of the people they live in, among, uh, is that we too are the sinners. We're not exempt from this. In fact, one of the things that's very significant, Nehemiah never blames the Israelites or the Jews. He doesn't blame them for what's happened in Jerusalem. Because, I mean, after all, why haven't you built the walls? Why, why did you let things fall into disarray? He doesn't blame them. He doesn't blame his forefathers. Well, you know, they're to blame for this mess. It was my parents. They abused me or, you know, uh, my grandparents, you know, it was their problem. No, 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 no. And Nehemiah starts with himself and he says, before you, O oh God, <laughs> I look at this. I'm a louse. I too am a sinner. Right? We've sinned against you both. We have behaved, and I mentioned the word, it's, it's to destroy. Uh, we have tried to obliterate your commandments. That's an amazing statement. Right? And it's amazing again that he doesn't blame anyone. Questions on this or comments? Uh, right? The Lord's Prayer. Think about that. Father, heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you move to forgive our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us, which, by the way, is a, a loaded statement. <laughs> uh, think about that for a minute. Uh, people just kind of say it flippantly or recite the, the Lord's Prayer, but you're saying, Lord, don't forgive me if I don't forgive somebody else, right? If I harbor bitterness, uh, ooh. Right? Well, that's getting too convicting. Let's move back to the text. Nehemiah, he, he addresses the Lord, recognizes his greatness. He appeals to God's forgiveness. The third thing we see in here that he rehearses God's promises. Nehemiah is well versed with Scripture. He will quote from Deuteronomy 9, Daniel's, or excuse me, uh, yeah, Deuteronomy 9, uh, Moses' words. Look at this. Turn to Deuteronomy 9. 
Let me paint the picture for you. The Israelites are bad boys <laughs> and girls. They have rebelled against God, and God has had, he says, I'm going to obliterate them. I, I, that, we're done. And Moses stands up and says, and, and I, we talked, in fact, we've studied this text together as a group down the way back, but uh, I think this is a test really for Moses. But in Deuteronomy 9.29, Moses says, he reminds the Lord, they are your people, your valued property. They may not act like it, but they're the apple of your eye, whom you brought out with great strength and power. You have a lot invested in them, Lord. <laughs> your name's at stake you've, because you've told the whole world that you're protecting them because of your people. So to give them up now would be a disaster. Nehemiah pulls the same words. It's, it, it echoes the same thing. Go back to Nehemiah. Look what he says. Uh, in fact, again, he even cites Moses in verse 7. Uh, and then he says, recall the word you commanded your faithful uh, servant Moses. If you act unfaithfully, I will scatter you. But if you repent and obey. And then he even says, uh, you know, you're the one in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, oh Lord, you're the one who redeemed us by your strength and by your powerful hand. That's Deuteronomy 9. And so Moses is weaving scripture together as he goes to the Lord. He's using the Lord's words and they, they move in tandem. There is a little book I've cited before. In fact, uh, Dave, uh, former pastor, was the author of this book, which is Principles and Practice of Prayer. Uh, if you're struggling with your prayer life, this little book, I encourage you to read. I, I try to read it once a year. It's just dynamite. It's in your notes. It's uh, Principles and Practice of Prayer by Ivan Finch. He makes this, French, excuse me. <laughs> he makes this statement there. He says, a common study of the Bible is essential for the nurture of the prayer life. And a consistent prayer life is essential for an understanding of the Bible. They walk, they, they go in tandem. Right? <clears throat> Knowing the word, praying through a text, that's vital. That's what Nehemiah is doing. <clears throat> He's already stated, Lord, you're the one who keeps his word. And he says, oh, and one of the, that covenant, let me rehearse that for you. If, if we're faithful, <clears throat> you will bring us back. And in fact, he says in verse 9, Lord, don't you, you know, you remember that if we're dispersed. Is Nehemiah assuming that the Lord has forgotten us? Why is he saying this? To honor him? What else? Doesn't the Lord know his covenant? He made with those people? <laughs> yeah, he knows. To show his faithfulness? To show his faithfulness? <clears throat> what else? I'm sorry? To remind himself. For Nehemiah to remind himself, right? Lord, I know these are true. I just want to rehearse this. We talked about this. <laughs> you mentioned this to us. Yeah. <clears throat> Charles. There is that undertow, but one of humility. <clears throat> but th there is that as well. Uh, yeah, I, we could go on. Uh, this, God has not forgotten. <laughs> uh, Nehemiah is rehearsing this ultimately for his own benefit, but also to tell the Lord, listen, 
as a follower of you, these are the promises that were made through Moses. And so he, he weaves scripture together, rehearsing the promises uh, of what has been given in the past. <clears throat> and, and notice, <clears throat> the, this cupbearer from Persia is very concerned about the Lord's reputation. Because he mentions this, look at verse 10. He says... O Lord, listen attentively to your... Well, this is verse 11, but... Who take pleasure in showing respect to what? Your name. Nehemiah's entire prayer is God-oriented. Well, there's a text of Scripture that says that God gives you the desires of your heart. But the context is a righteous man who's walking with the Lord. The desires of your heart are what God so wants, right? They are eclipsed by the Lord, and, and that's why it could be stated that God will give you desires of your heart. Nehemiah might not be living in Jerusalem. He's not a priest. <laughs> he, he's not a rabbi. But he is cling to the text of Scripture, right? He, he is not wavered. And he, he is very concerned about the Lord and the covenant that has been made with his people. And I think that's why Packer is correct. I think that's why does Nehemiah short circuit when he hears what's going on in Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is the city of God. And that, I mean, that's what's driving this as we go through this. Right? And we're going to see this in next week as we look at his interaction with Artaxerxes, which is also a very powerful scene. Well, <clears throat> we, we get through this section, and it, we finally come to the petition that he raises to the Lord in verse 11. Notice in verse 11, he says, Listen to the prayer of your servant. Do you realize eight times the word servant or servants is used in this short prayer? Eight times. Moses is a servant. Nehemiah is a servant. Israelites are servants. Before the Lord of the heavens, that's all we could be. Right? This is who we are before you. And so the first thing you see is great humility, don't you? Through this whole interaction with God. He was a servant to Adam He was, well, he's a cupbearer, and we're going to get to more of that. He's more than a servant. We're going to highlight in a second. Nehemiah has a lot to be proud of. He has a very powerful role in the Persian royal courts. Uh, he is a self-made man. He's living the good life. And yet, he says, I am nothing before you, O Lord. And if that doesn't seal the clincher, he doesn't pray, Lord, may you raise up someone to take care of that problem in Jerusalem. You know, whip those boys in shape <clears throat> back there in Jerusalem. No. He is going to say, you know what, Lord? I'm willing to go. Do you need someone to do? Think about that for a minute. Who are you, Nehemiah? You're not a construction worker. <laughs> you know, you're a cupbearer. But he says, Lord, if you need someone, let me do that. Because that, look what it says in verse 11. Who take pleasure and grant your servant success today and show compassion to me. <clears throat> Watch this, in the presence of this man. That's not showing disrespect. Uh, it, what the text is doing is kind of building anticipation. Because who is this man? Well, we'll see that in verse 1 of chapter 2, which we'll get to next week. King Artaxerxes. 
This is the grand poopah. This is like, I don't know, the President of the United States. This, this is huge. And cupbearer, let me just talk briefly on this. It's in your notes. Um, there's a great book on Persia and the Bible by Yamauchi. Gesundheit. Yamauchi uh, makes this great statement. He says, Nehemiah would have been a man of great influence as one with the closest access to the king and one who could well determine who got to see the king. Right? <clears throat> Above all, Nehemiah would have enjoyed the unreserved confidence of the king. So for him to go, uh, Getz is right in his book, and I cite this earlier in the notes, Nehemiah was not naive. He knew what lay ahead of him should he leave the king's court and go to Jerusalem. Not only would he give up a choice position with security and safety, but his very life would be at stake. And that proves to be true even in chapter 2. There's a whole group of local yokels, yeah, they're calling, uh, and they are not happy that Nehemiah would come and, 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 and of all things, to build the walls. <clears throat> How dare you? <clears throat> Excuse me. And so this prayer that we see begins with an exaltation of the Lord, a recognition of sin, a rehearsing of Scripture, and eventually and finally we come to, Lord, I'm willing to go. If you need someone to go, I'll, I'll serve you. Questions on this prayer? Isn't this dynamite? Oh, there's so much more we can unfold here, but... Uh, David, is, does he mention these things, Nehemiah, or God mentions to God because it has to come from his heart? It seems like a heart issue that you're reminding God of his covenant and all that, that God knows his covenant, but when we say it, it becomes a heart issue for us and we acknowledge it. That yeah, that? it does, because that's one of the, the value of prayer. Prayer... Uh, checks our heart uh, and makes sure it's in tune with what the, th the things of the Lord. That's the beauty of incorporating scripture into our prayers. Uh, and again, the two go hand in hand. Right? I tell my Greek students, before you write your exegetical paper, you need to spend time in prayer. You're going to the Word. Right? Uh, don't make it a, merely an academic exercise or we're in trouble. <laughs> um, let me give you three things that, as I look at this text, this prayer, and say, well, you know, what do we walk away with here? Number one, to be used by the Lord, we must set aside sin, or recognize it, apathy and sluggishness. Four months Nehemiah will spend in prayer before he ever approaches Artaxerxes. And we're told in the text, he was praying day and night. This wasn't a flippant move. In fact, we're going to see next week when Artaxerxes says, well, yeah, if you want to do that, what do you need? <laughs> Nehemiah has already thought through everything. So God has honed him in those four months in preparation. Nehemiah says, well, I don't know if he'd be willing. No. Nehemiah says, well, I need this, I need this, I need this. Here's how we're going to do this. So Nehemiah has already thought through all of this. Uh, look at a text, Romans 12. It's a familiar passage. Paul gets done through 1 through 11 discussing the doctrine of justification, meaning declared right. It's a great theological treatise. And he comes to 12 and he takes that two by four and he hits us over the head. And he says, therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. 
Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Watch this, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God. I'd have students in my office, well, I don't know if it's the will of God that I should marry her or him or, you know, go off to do this job. Well, you know what? First and foremost, how are you doing in your walk with the Lord? Right? Because according to Romans 12, if we're not having this mind transform and conform to the things of the Lord, forget knowing God's will. You know, Nehemiah is an incredible guy who's walking with God, knows the text, knows his God, and that's why he runs to him. Again, uh, remember, well, look at Nehemiah. Go back to Nehemiah 1 in verse 2. It says, Hananiah, who was one of his relatives, most likely his brother, we know he was in charge back in Jerusalem. We're going to learn this later in the book. So, I mean... The, the knee-jerk reaction is what if you were Nehemiah? Well, my brother, go deal, deal with this. Handle these things. Take care of this. No. The first thing he does is he drops to his knees and says, Lord, I, I, we need help. Let me give you another as we move. Secondly, even when we are walking in godliness and seeking to serve the Lord, he may have us wait. <laughs> Some of you can relate to this very loud and clear. Some of you have been looking for jobs. You've been talking to me about that. Uh, Isaiah 62 is a powerful text. I encourage you to look at it later. But um, Nehemiah has to wait four months before the Lord answers. Joseph, some say, had to wait 14 years in a prison in Egypt before God answered that and, and, and connected the dots for Joseph. And it may not be this side of eternity that God connects all the dots for you. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're living in sin, right? Nehemiah is walking with God in godliness. He's seeking the Lord and the Lord just in his timing, right? And then the final thing that I think we need to be reminded of is we must remember that the Lord wishes for us to do his will more than we do. And this is what I would tell students that were wringing their hands. I don't know what the Lord wants from me, blah, blah, blah. You know what? The Lord wants you to do his will more than you do. <laughs> just walk in obedience. Do it. Go. Don't, don't stand around wringing your hands. Jeremiah, we'll close with this. Look at Jeremiah 29. You know this text. But I want you to see it in light of, it, it's just so beautiful in light of uh, uh, what we just read in Nehemiah. Deuteron, or Jer, Jeremiah 29.10 For the Lord says, Only when the 70 years of Babylon rule are over will I again take up consideration for you. This is on the other side of the Babylonian exile. Nehemiah is on the other side after it's all over. But it says, Then I will fulfill my gracious promise to you and restore you to your homeland. Sound familiar? For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. When you call out to me and come to me in prayer, I will hear your prayers. The Lord's made a covenant with us through his son, Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, His mighty hand has acted. <laughs> he called you out of the shackles of sin and has brought to you where you are. If He has all this invested, He's going to keep His word, right? Nothing will snatch you out of the palm of His hand. And He has promised that He will deliver. So you may be in a period of waiting. You may be in a period of quandary like Nehemiah. May I encourage you, turn to the Lord. 
on the next page, just wrapping this up, there's some further thought you can do, but I also have a, in the middle of page four, there is a website that you can go to by the Bible Project that gives you about an eight minute video on Nehemiah that's dynamite if you kind of want an overview. But it's the quote at the bottom I want you to see by Swindoll. Why should we pray? Prayer makes us wait, clears our vision, quiets our heart, and activates our faith. Right? So why wouldn't we pray? Let's, let's go to the Lord. Father, we come to you and we thank you for Nehemiah. <laughs> this, this individual who comes on the scene in the text and then kind of disappears. But what a man of, of God. What a man of you that is willing to serve you. And Father, uh, help us in our unbelief. Help us, Lord, as we try to navigate the waters we live in. Lord, we are a sinful lot that uh, have been forgiven by you, and we thank you for your grace. And Father, we want to exalt your name. We want to be men known as a Nehemiah who are used mightily for you. Help us to be those kind of men. Father, thank you for our time around the word. In Jesus' name, amen.